Welcome to Here for Good. I'm Karen Scher, Vice President of Community Engagement for Federation. We are thrilled to have as our guest today, Professor Dan Ben-David, founder and head of the Shorish Institution for Socioeconomic Research in Israel and a senior faculty member at Tel Aviv University. The Shorish Institute is an independent, nonpartisan policy research center, and its mission is to conduct high-quality, impartial, evidence-based analysis and research on the root socioeconomic issues in Israel. In fact, though named Shorish, the word Shorish actually means root. Uh, Dan has been in town in St. Louis for the last couple days. He gave us talk last night through the Center for Jewish Learning, and we're just so happy that he made time to be with us this afternoon. So thank you, Dan, and welcome. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So your talk last night um, focused on a number of socioeconomic issues regarding um, the trends um, that are going on in Israel. And it's fascinating because we think, when we think about Israel, we, we think about the politics. So we don't always have an opportunity to delve into some of the other issues that, um, and trends that are happening in Israel. So we're really happy to have an expert in this area. So I'd love for you just to share a little bit about the Shorish Institute and how, how it came about. Sure. Um, actually, this is a, a long time coming. I'm a macroeconomist. Uh, an academic, uh, my academic training is actually in economic growth, analysis of long-run trajectories. Twenty years ago, in 1999, we had an election in Israel between uh, two people that probably most people in the States never heard of, Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, Ehud Barak. Names we just uh, have not heard <laughs> in the news at all. Things were said about the state of the economy uh, during that election campaign that to me is no more than just a reader of newspaper. I didn't really care about uh, Israeli data. I was living in my own uh, world and doing academic research, but they seemed a bit off uh, just as a casual reader of newspapers, and it, it piqued my curiosity. So uh, I went and looked at the data for the first time in my life through professional eyes, and it blew me away literally blew me away. This is 1999, so before the Intifada, before we hit a recession, uh, before the term startup nation was coined, although I was living in the startup nation, most of my colleagues and I, we traveled mm -hmm. to some of the best universities in the States, back and forth. Uh, our kids, colleagues are in high tech and biotech. and So what could be wrong? Well, we are moving in the direction that it won't happen tomorrow. The sky won't fall day after tomorrow, but it's unsustainable in, in every respect, which I'll explain in a moment. My wife, who I met when we were both undergraduate students in economics, is an economist. She can read graphs. She understands the material. We, had, we have still three kids, but they were small at the time, bigger today. Uh, and I went and showed her, so what do we do? Uh, this will not end well. Either we uh, just leave and take one of the offers uh, in the States, or I take a short time out uh, from the academic work, focus on what's happening in Israel, try to understand how could this possibly be happening under my own nose. Uh, at the time I was working as a, in the summers as a consultant and advisor to the World Bank, to leading policymakers from developing countries on not to do the things that are happening under my own nose in my own country. Very embarrassing. It sounds like you took this on as a personal mission. Yeah, I thought it would be temporary. I figured, look, this is what we're looking at is, again, it's unsustainable. I'll explain that in a moment because I know how daunting that must sound to the reader. But I figured 
I will show this. Uh, I will try to reach whichever policymakers I can reach. I didn't know anybody at the time. Once they see what I see, clearly it'll change their lives forever too, and they'll fix it. They'll deal with it. Israel has a history of dealing with issues at the last moment. When their back is to the wall, we fix them. We had hyperinflation. We dealt with it and, 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 and so on. So I decided to take a, a few months' time out from academic work, which uh, turned into 20 years, basically. Within a year of, of beginning that process, uh, I, had, uh, I had the opportunity to show with some of my colleagues to meet and show the, my findings to Ehud Barak, who would by then become Prime Minister of Israel, and, uh, and literally blew him away, uh, to be honest. And uh, this was in April 2000 when we met him. It was just three of us, and he asked that we come and, and show the material to his entire cabinet in May 2000 and gave us a full day to, to show this stuff to the cabinet. And to make a long story short, I've shown it to everyone who's been prime minister since then. So we're on fourth and counting and counting and counting because it's the same fourth for a while now. But uh, So you pretty much brought this onto the national agenda. And to it- everyone. And, and it's slowly beginning to make its way through. Four and a half years ago, we decided, my colleagues and I decided that this isn't happening quickly enough, and uh, we need to emphasize, we're we're in a society that's more and more inundated with data. How do you separate between the wheat and the chaff? What are the root issues that will actually determine whether Israel will be and won't be? And we chose that name for the institute that we created, Shoish, means root in Hebrew. And our only reason for existing is to focus not on everything that's interesting, not on everything that's a problem, but on the primary issues that will determine whether Israel will be or won't be in in several decades. And one of the things that we are fighting against the current is a lot of the paradigms that, that are used to define Israel today are outdated, uh, and to a certain extent they, they uh, hide the the primary issues. For example, one of the uh, main issues that defines uh, or the par- paradigms that defines the, the, the discussion on Israel is national security. Um, will we be able to stand up to our neighbors, defend ourselves against Iran? Um, that's been the defining paradigm of, of uh, and it's also been the defining characteristic of our defining issue of our national elections for, for since the birth of Israel. But national security isn't just how many tanks and planes you have. One of the things that's happening within our startup nation is that half the kids in Israel are getting a third world education. And they belong to the fastest growing parts of the population. So this country, which has some of the best universities in the entire world, has another population in Israel which is growing very, very rapidly which will only be able to maintain a third world economy when they grow up. So and tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, you just mentioned that you have the top universities. What yeah. what's what's happened with the education system? Well, our parents had it right. Our the founding generation in Israel who uh, had all of the excuses that we have. Wars, they had wars of existence literally, which we don't have. Uh, immigration, we had Russians come in massive numbers, so clearly we can't deal with other stuff. 
Well, Russians were a million Russians into a country at the time of five million people. But the founding generation, everybody, nearly everybody, was an immigrant. And they came with only the clothes on their backs. And yet they found they had the wherewithal to build not only towns and roads, they built universities, world-class universities. They built hospitals. And, and they put Israel on a trajectory that was literally phenomenal. I mean, if you look at all of the, 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 the poorest countries in the world, 150 years ago, which included Palestine, and look at what happened to them since. Uh, the mo most outstanding case is, is China, for example, that went from $300 per person per year 150 years ago to about $7,000, phenomenal increase. We went from $200 to $40,000 a year. I mean, there's nobody even in our league in terms of what, what, what that founding generation did. Literally a miracle. But that miracle is in danger because we changed our national priorities. The catalyst was the Yom Kippur War. Um, it actually began in the Six-Day War. But, but the biggest shakeup occurred after the Yom Kippur War, which just shook Israel to its foundations. And, and it led to political changes, which led to changes in national priorities. And while, again, the binoculars are right-wing, left-wing, it's not right-wing, left-wing. It's, it's a shift from things that built a country, put it on a path, a very fast growth path. But not only that, one, in one of the most important textbooks on economics of the period, it was written by a Nobel laureate, Paul Samuelson. And it was the book in economics in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Everybody in the developed world who studied economics studied that book. And in that book, when he talks about inequality, he uses Israel as the example of how to do it right. We are today, uh, when you look at inequality, we have one of the highest rates of inequality in the developed world. Poverty and disposable incomes, we lead the OECD. We have the highest rate of poverty in the OECD. And coming down the pike here are a whole bunch of children that are not going to make it better, they're going to make it worse. Because they don't, we, we, we're not giving them the education that they need to receive. The hospitals uh, in Israel, um, when I say they built hospitals, the, the, the population in the 50s and 60s was growing exponentially in Israel. And yet they kept pace with the hospital beds. So the, share, the number of hospital beds per capita in Israel remained pretty constant until the mid-70s. And since the mid-70s, you can put a ruler on it, it's just dropping like a rock. And so today we have the highest occupancy rates in the developed world in hospitals, which lead to all kinds of uh, problems like uh, infectious diseases and so on. And we are the world leaders, or the developed world leaders, in terms of deaths from infectious diseases per capita. U.S., by the way, isn't a big star here either. It's number two. We're number one. But we are 73% more deaths than the U.S. per capita from infectious diseases in our hospitals. And just to give you a sense of the magnitude, this, this is something that's doubled over the past two decades because of neglect. We have so roughly 300 people die in traffic accidents in Israel each year because we drive like maniacs. <laughs> yes, I've driven in Israel but, before. I've <laughs> witnessed that. <laughs> But just to give you a sense, it's 300. Last year was a really bad year. It's 350. The number of Israelis dying each year from infectious diseases is 4,000 to 6,000. It's like an order of magnitude of like 12 to 15 times 
the number in traffic. That's on us because we shifted national priorities away from the things that, that are important. So when you say you sh- we shift, <clears throat> Israel shifted its national priorities um, from a growing, developing, creating the infrastructure of what's needed at, mm-hmm. for a, fast, a fastly growing population that is still fastly growing. I understand the, the population, population has gone from, what, 6 million to 9 now. million <laughs> in the last 19 years, 20 years. Yeah. I read something about We're that. We're 9 million now. So no new – so. Hospital, new hospitals aren't being built in new and an education Not at the same is- pace. They are being built. It, again, you, you can't say that nothing is being done because things are, they're just not keeping pace. Got it, got and, it. And uh, so, so this country that had, um, in 1970, congestion on the roads was identical to small countries in Europe, the number of vehicles per, per kilometer road or usage. Today, it's three times the average in the small European countries, even though we have 40% less vehicles per capita because it's really expensive to own a car. It's just that the alternative to cars weren't built. We didn't have rail. We don't have rail. I mean, it's now beginning. They're beginning to build. But the pace is not anywhere near quick enough to keep pace. So the, 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 the congestion on the road is just growing exponentially because we don't have anywhere to, uh, no alternative. So tell um, me what the priorities are currently that kind of um, bump up against what you see and what the Shoresh Institute and the data um, is showing as the um, tra- this unsustainable trajectory and um, how your institute is um, meeting with policymakers to help change that. Well, first and foremost, one of the major problems is in, in Israel which is a problem elsewhere, but it's it's extremely problematic within Israel, is a lack of transparency in the budget. So you really can't put your finger on who's getting what and why is it going there and not going here. It's obscured and, and because there are people that don't really want to have that discussion where the money's going. So all we are capable of, of seeing are, A, the outcomes, some of which I described, and B, the total amount of money being spent, because that you can't hide, so you know what the government budget is. One of the excuses that has been given for years is that we don't have enough money because we uh, spend so much on defense. And we do spend a lot on defense, but that's no more than an excuse. In recent years, civilian expenditures are below the average for the West, but that's only recent years. From the 60s until about 10 years ago, we spent more than... What was being, what is being spent in, on average in the developed world in civilian expenditure. It just wasn't directed to the right places. And even when it is, uh, for example, our education system, um, we on the one hand are one of the most educated populations in the world on paper. We have the high, the fourth highest share of individuals with academic degrees, except that many of them are garbage. Uh, I'll explain what yeah. that means in a moment. We have the third highest uh, average years of schooling per person in the entire world. But but that's a shortcut. We, we, we focus on quantity rather than quality. Because when you look at not the number of years of education, but the education in those years, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, uh, who is from this neighborhood, I understand. Uh, Springfield, yes, yeah. yeah not right very next far door, away. Next door. When you look at what our kids know today in terms of math, science, and reading, and international exams, they are at the bottom of the developed world. And that doesn't even include the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox children in Israel, who are a fifth of the children, the majority of whom don't even study the material because they don't, 
they don't, the, the boys, for example, don't study a core curriculum after eighth grade, and what they study until eighth grade doesn't include uh, science or English, very, very rudimentary math. Uh, it, we, even without them, we're at the bottom of the developed world. Is that a the, curriculum issue? Is that a, is that an um, investment in education? And, and the budget, the yeah. education budget, and that's where I was driving at, has, because we have such a problem in education, we just throw money at the problem instead of fixing it. So the education budget in Israel has surpassed the defense budget this year for the first time in Israel's history. And yet, here we are still at the bottom of the developed world because we're not dealing with the root issues here. And and in education, the, the issue is, first of all, what are you teaching the children? Are you focusing on 200 different subjects or maybe these are the subjects that we need to focus on the most? Are we spending enough time teaching them? And who are the teachers? How do we choose teachers, train them, compensate them? The majority of teachers in Israel, uh, 79%, of the teachers in Israel study in some two dozen teaching colleges. The entrance requirements for every single, every single teaching college are below the entrance requirements for every single academic department and every single university in Israel, except for a few in humanities. So like, while there are some gifted and talented people who choose to become teachers as a sense of mission and, 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 and they could do anything in life and become teachers. It's not the rule. The rule is, the general rule is that these are primarily individuals who could do nothing else, could never in their life get accepted to university, and yet these are the ones we expect to bring our kids up to university level. How's that going to happen? Um, so again, giving them more money to the same people, that's not going to fix anything. So as an institute, as mm -hmm. um, the Shorsh Institute, and you're meeting with all pol the policymakers and everyone, um, are, you help, are you working together? Wh where do you see working together on helping to solve some of these challenges? Um, well, Have you if, seen if we any stay, success, sure. right? So uh, one of these areas that we spoke about now is education. So we did a major study on what needs to be in a core curriculum by following the children over time into the job market, looking at all the variables that determine wages and employment and so on in order to see did it really matter what they studied in high school. And in a pilot study that we did, in order to convince the Central Bureau of Statistics to make this database for us, we focused on math. The reason being that the share of, of 12th graders in Israel Studying math at five units, which is the highest level of math, was dropping like a rock. It fell by about a third and half a decade because everybody's telling these, these kids to dumb down. The parents are telling them to be a big star in a small pond. So if you're having a tough time getting high grades in five units, go to four, go to three. Just get high grades. That's what matters. The schools are competing with one another, and they want to show that their grades are better than any, any other school. So they're dumbing down the weaker students and pushing them down. What we found, and we showed it to the education minister, Naftali Bennett, is that the kids who were studying five units of math and flunking and barely passing or flunking were earning 12 years later what the kids who excelled at four units in terms of hourly wages. The kids who were flunking at four units at, uh, were earning what the kids who excelled at three units were earning. We showed it to uh, Naftali Bennett. He went on a massive national campaign over the past few years to convince the kids to take 12 units and to primarily convince their parents. It was geared at the parents, geared at the principals and, and, the, and the teachers, and they turned it around. So it, it increased. 
But that's a drop in the bucket because that's just math. What we really talk, spoke with them about was the need for systemic education reform and to fix the entire system and how, how we choose teachers, train them, what are the subjects. We have matriculation exams uh, given in Israel uh, called Bagrut in Hebrew, some 200 exams. Who needs 200 exams? Focus on, on what you need. And in addition, these exams are not calibrated over time, so they're not comparable. So what are you doing? You're just throwing money at exams that are worth have no nutritional value whatsoever, where they could. There would be an important measure for you and for everybody else to know, is the education system improving over time or getting worse? What is happening? So what are you concerned um, that the effects will be for the future of the country if the education system um, does not improve? When half the kids are getting a third world education and they belong to the fastest growing parts of the population, what that means is that eventually they'll only be able to maintain a third world economy. Mm -hmm. But a third world economy can't support a first world army. And without a first world army living in the most dangerous area on the planet, that has existential implications. We have now, we've been spending the past year speaking with uh, everyone from the Likud, from Benny Gantz and Lapid who had blue-white party, uh, people on the left, Avigil Lieberman on the right, telling them, you guys need to start working together. This is not a left or right issue. This is not secular, religious, or Arab Jew. We're all on the same ship. It's a luxury liner. You may have heard of it called the Titanic. And we're arguing about the placement of deck chairs instead of that big iceberg ahead. We need to start focusing on the iceberg. We need to change the shift, shift the direction of the ship. So in are the, they listening? You think, are they, are they hear, heeding the call that we are, to, that Israel's at a time where this, we're, if not at the brink, soon to be at a brink? They're listening, but it's really a race against time. To the extent, I mean, as evidence, I mean, Gantz is quoting our stuff publicly, and uh, Lapid used our material to do a TED TED-style talk, using our graphs to show uh, where Israel's headed. Avigdor Lieberman basically tanked Netanyahu's uh, attempt to make a, a very right-wing religious government by saying, wait a moment, we need to do something about these religious guys, and he's using our material. Uh, I'm not going to go into the politics because we are apolitical, but the whole point is that we're on the same ship, need to start working together. And and so it's not enough just to talk with the politicians. We need to change the entire discourse, the public discourse, to to dig down below the shallow, very superficial issues that that inundate the press, be, be it the, the formal press or social media, and move from reality shows to reality. Which means, what it, how is Israel going to end up? And bring this information to as many people who care deeply about Israel. And, and and show the need for us to start working together uh, in Israel and to work with our with our uh, with our brothers abroad. We only have you know we we have only one Jewish country. We have this opportunity once every two thousand years. We got to get it right. We can't screw up. Countries do screw up. Look at Lebanon to our north. Lebanon, you know, Beirut was once called the the Paris of the Middle East. Because that was that was Lebanon. It was like this jewel in the crown of the Arab world. And they destroyed it. And and the educated left the country, who are primarily the Christian. Now it's between the Shia and the Sunni. And, and Lebanon, it's not in danger of not existing anymore like Israel. But that's gone. That, that jewel in the crown of the Arab world went into civil war. 
it's it, the, basically the Hezbollah uh, now control what's going on there, and whoever can leaves. Uh, the Soviet Union didn't collapse because Reagan attacked it. It collapsed because it, of the economics. It, it just wasn't sustainable. Countries collapse, and we don't have that option. Right, and and you had also mentioned, um, or I heard this, uh, that highly educated Israelis are leaving a number, high percentage, yeah. and for many different reasons, obviously, but that's also depleting um, the further and further behind Israel goes, uh, and just to ex- explain what it is I'm talking about, the primary determinant of hourly wages is hourly productivity, the amount we produce per hour. It's called labor productivity. That's the name. The gap between the G7 countries, which are the leading developed world countries, U.S., Canada, U.K., France, Germany, Italy, and Japan, the gap between their average and Israel since the 1970s has grown more than threefold. They're just pulling away from us. Very steady trajectory for the G7 and very steady for Israel, but the gap is, is growing wider and wider, which means that while there are many Israelis who will live in Israel no matter what, many have a price. And the bigger the gap between what they can earn abroad and what they can earn in Israel, especially the most educated and skilled young Israelis who have a plethora of options, you're crossing the threshold of more and more who will decide to leave, and these are the ones that we need the most. So when you look at Israel, 9 million people is a lot, and a lot of people move to Israel, some leave Israel, and we don't even know the the net flow. But when you look at the most educated Israelis, there we do have a pretty good idea. And if you look at all of the people, all of the Israelis who received academic degrees in a 30-year period between 1980 and 2010, some left Israel, some returned to Israel. For every such person who returned to Israel, in 2014, two and a half left, 2.8 left. By 2018, that's above four already. For every one that returned, four have left. Again, we're not at critical mass numbers. We still have some of the best universities in the world. We have a phenomenal high-tech sector. The direction is a, is a very concerning direction. And maybe to, to even highlight that, how how narrow uh, a window we have in this regard. When you look at high-tech, okay, 9% of the workforce is in high-tech in Israel. High-tech manufacturing, however, is only 2.7%. That 2.7% is responsible for 40% of our merchandise exports. It's highly leveraged by a really, really small group. The faculty and the research universities, just one-tenth of 1%, of the adult population. In other words, the high-tech manufacturing people, the physicians and the researchers at the universities, all of them together are less than 130,000 people. In this country of 9 million, to be exact, 128,500. If a critical mass out of that group gets up and leaves, it's game over. Yeah. And and that's what we need to, to make sure doesn't happen. And And what we're about is making in Israel an attractive place for these guys who will want to live there, but by attractive that will attract them will mean it's attractive for your children here and for many of the young Jews who are becoming less and less interested or worse about Israel because it's becoming a country that for the same reasons that many of your kids are being disillusioned by Israel, many of our kids are being disillusioned and they're leaving. Well, it's interesting, you know, and when we have talked about growing up 
and our connection to Israel about investing in the social welfare of the state and meaning how can we invest in programs and services um, in Israel. But this is taking it to a whole other level. How, and I, and I know that's one of the reasons why Federation has been investing in the Shorish Institute since its founding, yeah, right? Since and founding. even in fact, one in of, work. it has been one of the important, it, it's a pathbreaker in that regard because what we do in order to avoid being painted as as with an agenda. Most researchers in the States, you're right-wing, left-wing, pro-this, anti-that. We want to be in a place where we can talk with a right-wing, left-wing, religious, non-religious, Arab, Jews, everybody. So we cannot be in a position that a funder will paint us as, as one thing or the other. In that regard, a federation is like an, is regarded like a nation builder. In the nation building, it's not with an agenda of pushing or plugging this or that. The St. Louis Federation has been phenomenal in that regard, where already today most of the major federations in America use our material to guide their strategies in Israel. The missions come, they ask us to brief them, gave 81 talks. This, what we are able to do, not only is the, the money very important and it enables us to do the research and so on that we get from St. Louis, but it's a symbol that we can use for the other federations. Say, look, somebody's got to also pay for this. Uh, you, you can't be free riders forever. You need, I mean, to, for someone, for an organization to be able to fund the research that's needed to go out there and put it out there in, in front of the leading policymakers, that needs to be funded, and it must be funded by groups that are not considered groups with an agenda. Only a few, there are only a few such organizations and individuals that would fit in that category. And in that regard, St. Louis Federation has been a pathbreaker. Uh, Have other in, federations in come on board, um, since? No, but now we could, but we are able to say, look, you know, there are, and, and the, and the federation here is also trying to help us reach out. I mean, because it's really a change of mindset for federations. Because usually what they do is, is help localize needs. And so, you know, a school is doing bad or, some, or the neighborhood is, is, is in need of help. And it's clear, I mean, you, if you can help, you help them. What we're talking about is setting an entire nation on the right path. It's in other words, change, instead right? of fixing areas on the Titanic, but still keeping it the Titanic, the biggest leverage is actually how do you change national policy? in a direction that will basically save us. And and that is a game changer that not again, this is the first federation that actually gets it in that regard that it is possible to have an influence on policy at the national level at national level. It's a lot more of a leverage than you get of just fixing a school if you can fix an entire education system, if you can fix an entire healthcare system. Uh, and, and to the extent that we are able to influence the policymakers, it's not just the policymakers, it's also getting the stuff out into the press, into the, the media. Uh, we're still too small in that regard, so we only have research and we don't have a PR, but our findings were, were cited uh, 181 times last year in, in the press, which means roughly once every two days. Even though we're not doing actively anything in that regard, we don't have the resources to do it. We just do the research. We, we become the go-to place for, for, for uh, a host of organizations and policymakers to come and get the information. 
Well, I hope this interview mm-hmm. and if we if we get a lot of listeners out there not beyond St. Louis and in other communities um, will learn that this is something really important for our North American Jewish communities to really uh, invest in this type of, of work um, and be part of this systemic change in Israel. So is there anything else that you would like to address before we wrap up this conversation? I think that uh, that this is information. Uh, first of all, all of the stuff that I spoke about is available on the Shorish website, shorish.institute. So anyone who's listening who wants to see it, it's all there in graphs. We try to make it as accessible as possible to anyone who is not an economist so that everyone will be able to understand it. But the whole point is to try and get as many people who care deeply about Israel to understand the predicament that this country is in, that this link between you and us needs to be maintained because we need to learn from you that Judaism isn't only the Judaism that we see, and you need to learn from us that it's not only the Judaism that you see. There are other aspects to it as well. These are things that we we're, we are both stakeholders in the same company. We live there, but this is something that uh, that is, is vital to maintain unique uh, Israel and unique Judaism. Well, Danny, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening and important information to get out there to our community and to all the work that the Shorish Institute is doing around the root issues of ha- that's happening in Israel. The things that we don't always think about are the real challenges in Israel, but really what are the systemic issues that are have the possibility of keeping Israel from moving the upward trajectory of um of sustainability as a country. So thank you for being with us today. Um, that's thanks, it. thanks for having me. Thanks to the St. Louis community for supporting what we do. Of we course. really appreciate it. So that's it for this episode. Please help others find us by leaving a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening to Here for Good. 